Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to you dads. I, I hope you have nothing more to do today than manipulate that channel changer for game seven and cheer the Cavs on the victory. <laughs> Come on, people. They're the enemy. That Warriors are the enemy of the Lakers. But I know they're from our division, and we should be rooting for our division. But my wife is from Akron, and so is LeBron. And I distinctly remember taking my mother-in-law to lunch one day at, she, she's from Atlanta, so she says, Panera. So we were going to Panera. We were driving the back way, which she insisted on taking, and she pointed uh, to this neighborhood, and she said, that's where LeBron's mother lives. I was like, all right. So, <clears throat> so go Cavs. Uh, well, today we are right on the front end of this new series for the summer on habits of grace, and today we're going to be looking at the Word. One summer many years ago, I worked for my uncle, which meant I was uh, swinging a hammer and turning a wrench and refurbishing forklifts and assembling warehouse rack, lifting, pulling, pushing, getting up early, coming home late, uh, uh, sweating, freezing. You say freezing, that what, sounds like it was a summer job. Well, it was a summer job, but this one particular uh, project we had was at Knudsen Ice Cream, where we worked in a warehouse that was 30 below zero. So I was freezing. Now, this is a material handling business. And I, I asked my uncle one day why he liked his work. Because I found it entirely unlikable. I mean, warehouse rack is cold and heavy, and forklifts transport pallets of boring and inanimate stuff, and most of our work was done in bustling downtown L.A. or at some uh, nondescript industrial park in and around Southern California. And uh, uh, I'll never forget his response because it made an enduring impact on me. He said, um, you know, I don't think of my work like that. I think of my work as putting uh, food on the table for 125 families. And in that moment, everything changed. My perspective on the work changed. None of the elements had changed, but my perspective on those elements had. It was an aha moment, a, a gestalt moment, if you will. What had been a job for me was, was a joy for my uncle. What, what meant sweat for me was an act of service for him. And since that conversation, I have never looked at work, any kind of work, in the same way. Well, if you grew up in an evangelical church, you may look at the Bible as that thing that you were presented uh, as a child by a parent or maybe a Sunday school teacher or a pastor, that thing that you tucked up under your arm and you, you brought to church every Sunday or midweek meeting or summer camp. 
And if you're a regular part of this church, the Bible may be that thing for which you left home, you came to Biola to get a, a formal Bible education, or even that thing uh, for which you pursued a graduate degree in some area of biblical literature or theology. Now, all of those things are fine unless they mark the beginning and the end of your relationship with the Bible. A relationship in which the Bible is nothing more than that thing you carry to church, that thing on which you're tested, that thing about which you lecture. And while you wish it were more, because you know it should be, it's not. Well, again, uh, last week, Eric Tonis introduced us to our summer series on habits of grace, nine uh, elements, nine aspects, nine building blocks of the Christian life. The goal of which uh, this entire series, part and parcel, is, as Eric put it, and I quote, intimacy with an enjoyment of God which glorifies him and bears fruit in us. Now, I've got a question for you. Do you associate intimacy and enjoyment and fruitfulness with God's word in your life? Well, if not, brothers and sisters, take heart because you are in good company. One of the eminent biblical scholars of the last century who was well into the second half of her career realized one day, and I quote, Despite all my years of study, I knew nothing of God. Even yours truly, undergraduate degree in Bible, graduate degree in theology, had been a pastor for five years, and had to admit one day in my early 30s that while I read the Bible to be tested on it or to teach it, I'd never really read it in any sustained and transformative fashion. So wouldn't it be beautiful if this morning you had an aha moment, a gestalt moment, if you will, with the Bible? Wouldn't it be beautiful this morning if you stopped viewing the Bible as that that thing that you carry, maybe in uh, a hardback form or an electronic form, to church every Sunday, that thing that you study, that thing that you teach, and instead start viewing the Bible as it is? the bread of life, living water, food and refreshment for your very soul. So, what I want to do at the beginning here is be clear on what this sermon is not. This is not a sermon on how to get a handle on the Bible, either in terms of doctrine you know, such as the reliability of the Scripture or the inerrancy of the Scripture or the sufficiency of the Scripture or a sermon on studying the Bible, though that would be a good thing. Uh, Because if truth be told, most of what we know about the Bible, we've either been told about the Bible or we've read about the Bible, but we really haven't read the Bible. The great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry got it right when he said, study close and especially make the Bible your study. 
There's no knowledge in which I am more desirous to increase in than that. Men get wisdom by books, but wisdom toward God is to be gotten out of God's book and that by digging. Most men do, but walk over the surface of it and pick up here and there a flower. Few dig into it. So, to be clear, study is good, but that's not what this sermon is about. Well, the sermon concerning the habit of reading God's Word is not about how to get a handle on it, then what is it for? Well, this sermon is about how God's Word can get a handle on you, to refresh you, and to nourish you, and to satisfy you, and to transform you, and to make you into the kind of person that you could not have otherwise become. So we're going to do that by uh, taking a look at Psalm 119. It's a psalm that uh, rests dead center, almost dead center in the middle of the Bible. It's two chapters off. It's the longest chapter of the Bible, 176 verses, and it is all about God's Word. And we'll see here in Psalm 119 how that Word gets a hold of a person as he or she Willfully, courageously, and prayerfully approaches it. That's the way we're going to start. And then to finish, we'll consider some ways to uh, apply what we've learned. And as uh, uh, a dad on this Father's Day, I want to commend this practice, this discipline, this habit to you dads. It's the best gift that you'll get today, and you can give it to yourself. And not only that, the residuals are great for your wife and for your children. And it's a blessing for me to be the beneficiary of that kind of dad who happens to be here in this service this morning. I won't point him out and embarrass him, but I can say that one thing about my dad that was true when I was three 13, 33, even at my present age of 55, I've walked in on him unannounced on random mornings to find the Bible open and in his lap. It shaped him. I've been a beneficiary of that. And dads, you can do the same for your family as well. So, according to Psalm 119, to grow in the habit of being handled being shaped by God's word, one must approach it willfully. Willfully. That's not an easy thing to do for us, especially here in the West. If I had to choose one thing from over the past 30 years that collegians have said to me more than anything else, it it has to be this. I don't want to read the Bible because I have to, I want to read the Bible because I want to. And I appreciate the spirit with which most of them have said that. Sincere, earnest, well-meaning. But the psalmist is clear that if one wants to be handled by the Scripture, then he must exchange his will for God's will And that, by way of reading and obeying it, no matter how you feel about the Bible on any given day. What does that look like? Well, according to Psalm 119, it looks like this. 
praising the Lord from whom that word comes, meditating on that word, fixing your eyes on it, not forgetting it, running in the way of it, speaking to others, even kings, about that word, lifting up your hands toward the word in worship, and even singing about it, and continually keeping and delighting in that word, even to the very end of your life. Not easy, but nowhere do I read that it is. And yet, neither is it impossible, and to be sure, the rewards are great. Lieutenant General William K. Harrison was the most decorated soldier in the 30th Infantry Division, rated by Dwight Eisenhower as the number one infantry division in World War II. General Harrison entered Belgium at the head of the Allied forces. He was awarded every decoration for valor short of the Medal of Honor. He was one of the few generals who was wounded in action, and he was chosen to be the chief of staff in the UN command at the outset of the Korean War, and then he was chosen uh, at the end of that conflict to lead the negotiations that brought it to a close. Well, years before all of that uh, fame, as a 20-year-old cadet at West Point, General Harrison, then Cadet Harrison, um, committed himself to reading the Old Testament once a year and the New Testament four times a year. And he held to that commitment, even in the midst of war, catching up on his schedule in between battles. And when the war was over, General Harrison was right on schedule. By the time he lost his eyesight at the age of 90 and could no longer read, he had read the Old Testament 70 times, and he'd read the New Testament 280 times. So if nothing else, General Harrison's story teaches us that no matter how busy one is, no one, even a decorated general at war, is too busy to engage in regular Bible reading. It also teaches us that a life steeped in the Scripture is a life that's shaped by the Scripture. It's written that, and I quote, his closest associates say that every area of General Harrison's life, domestic, spiritual, and professional, in each of the great problems he faced were informed by the Scriptures. Wow. So, to approach God's Word, to be handled by God's Word, you've got to do it willfully. But you, you also must do it courageously. Um, if you willfully approach God's Word, then you're going to be opposed by those who don't, especially in our present cultural climate. Consider an article that was posted eight months ago in an online magazine that's been around for a couple of decades, that is to say it's not some new offshore website that hurls this stuff out. It's an article entitled, The Ten Most Shameful Things to Admit in Los Angeles. And the sixth most shameful thing to admit here, for us, because this is where we live, um, is that you're a Christian. The author claims... And I quote here from the article, it's weird 
because LA's like the world capital of kooky spiritual beliefs, and Christianity is perhaps the kookiest spiritual belief of all. But unlike 12-step groups, Kabbalah, or the Marianne Williamson Lecture Circuit, she's a a self-help speaker and writer, Christianity is deeply uncool. Maybe it's too mainstream, or too working class, or just has too much historical baggage. The only thing more embarrassing to believe is in Scientology. Now, some of you may be thinking, uh, you know, a statement like that is sad, but... um, Hey, nothing to pine over. Well, consider this. An email I received earlier this year from my youngest daughter who was doing a a gap term at a Christian youth center over in the UK. And she requested prayer against a piece of legislation that was being put before Parliament asking that an agency of the government be given prerogative to do among churches and camps what it was already doing among schools. And that is to have the right to anonymously infiltrate that group, that school, that camp, that church, in order to determine if participants were being radicalized and thereby posing a danger to society. Well, gratefully, the legislation didn't pass, but uh, the fact that Christian groups are viewed in that way is, is rather disquieting. Now, again, you you may say, well, that's the UK, this is the US. Well, consider a piece posted four days ago in a a long-established periodical identifying a growing meta-narrative among the media blaming Christians for the recent carnage in Orlando. Or just consider what's happening in our own state that could jeopardize or even end Christian education as we know it. Given this rising sentiment, it's not so difficult to imagine how Nero got away with blaming the Christians for the burning of Rome, is it? And you can never, or rather, and you can be sure that statements and legislation and logic like this are only going to increase. And that's why becoming a man of the word, becoming a woman of the word, not only, not only requires a will to pick up the book, open it, and read it, but the courage to follow it. Consider these words from Psalm 119. The insolent, insolent smear me with lies, but my whole heart keeps your precepts. Verse 69. They have almost made an end of me on earth but I have not forsaken your precepts, verse 87. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies, verse 95. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts, verse 110. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight, verse 143. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies, verse 157. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Psalm 119, 161. Men and women who willfully and courageously embrace God's word will over time become men and women who are handled, shaped by that word. 
But if growing in this habit merely requires determination and bravery, then why don't we all just choose it, right? I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And this is where we begin to recognize, as Eric pointed out last week, the the interconnectedness of these habits. Because a person who is willfully and courageously embracing God's word can only inextricably do so by way of prayer. And Eric Twisselman will be preaching on that next week. So that's the third thing that we see here in Psalm 119. You really can't grow to maturity in the word apart from prayer. Eugene Peterson uh, incisively makes this observation. Uh, The scriptures read and prayed are our primary and normative access to God as he reveals himself to us. The scriptures are our listening posts for learning the language of the soul, the way God speaks to us. They also provide the vocabulary and grammar that are appropriate for us as we in turn speak to God. Prayer detached from scripture, from listening to God, disconnected from God's words to us, short circuits the relational language that is prayer. Christians acquire this personal and relational practice of prayer primarily, although not exclusively, under the shaping influence of the Psalms. Interesting. So when we look at Psalm 119, how does God use prayer so that it gets a handle on his people? Well, notice the kinds of prayer that God thinks are important when we approach the scripture. Three kinds of prayer. First, when you open the Bible, ask God to teach you. (laughs) Ask him to teach you what's on the page before you. A dozen times in these 176 verses, the psalmist prayerfully asks the Lord to teach him by way of his word. Three of those times he adds that he would be granted understanding concerning what he's reading. And one of those times, he asks that the Lord would open his eyes so that he can see wondrous things in God's word. How many of us fail to behold the wonder of God's law, to understand the beauty of his ways, to grasp the plain teaching of it all simply because we have not asked him? a unique privilege. It's a unique privilege that's ours as God's people in relationship to God's book that is unlike any other book that's ever been written or ever will be written. Some years ago, some buddies and I got together and we bought a ticket for a friend who had published three Western novels to go to a workshop out in Riverside that was being led by Louis L'Amour. Now, some of you know who he is, some of you don't. L'Amour was a great novelist. He was specifically uh, known for his Western novels. And the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal referred to him as one of the world's most popular writers. Well, our friend arrived at this workshop early, so he thought he'd go get some breakfast, and he went to the hotel restaurant and you can hear it coming. 
sitting in a booth by himself eating his, uh, what would Louis L'Amour eat? Probably uh, biscuits and gravy and cold coffee. Uh, He's eating breakfast, and so this friend goes up and introduces himself, and L'Amour invites him to sit down. And they talk for the next 45 minutes about writing. And I can remember this friend coming back and reporting on all that L'Amour had said. I wish I could remember it. I do remember one thing, though. Uh, (coughs) L'Amour said, basically, don't ever leave a sentence unadorned. In other words, use your adjectives liberally. So, you know, the sun never sets below the horizon, but the blazing orange sun can set below a a long and lonely horizon. You know, that, that kind of stuff. Well, just a few years after that memorable Saturday morning, Louis L'Amour died. And a conversation like that between writer and reader became impossible, never to happen again. But brothers and sisters, do you realize that the spirit who breathed God's written word from pen to paper years and years ago is still alive today and will continue to be on into eternity? Uh, 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 He he is the one that, that creates that dynamism that we experience between the word and our own hearts. That's why when the moderator of the Church of Scotland presents a Bible to the new monarch of Britain upon his or her coming coronation, he will do so by referring to them as the lively words of God, because that's what they are. That's why when John refers to God's Spirit in uh, his first epistle, he, he does so as teacher. It's the Holy Spirit that teaches us God's word. And that's why we can prayerfully ask him to instruct us and increase our understanding and allow us to see wondrous things in his word. So that's the first thing. Second thing, when we open the Bible, we should prayerfully ask that God would give us life by way of his words. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me Life according to your promise, verse 154. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules, verse 156. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love, verse 159. Could it be, even among the Bible readers in this room this morning, that our failure to pray for a life according to God's word is why we are weak and anxious and wavering and tired and conflicted and loveless and graceless and thoughtless. It could all be remedied by prayer. And finally, along with asking God to teach us his word and give us life by way of it, Psalm 119 instructs us, to prayerfully ask the Lord to keep us from wandering away from the word. Seven times over, he does in this psalm. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments, verse 10. Incline my heart to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, 
verses 36 and 37. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me, verse 133. Uh, The late Bob Sosi, whom uh, some of you knew, once said to me, um, and I can imagine him saying this with all his uh, facial ticks and twitches. You know, I've, I've heard people say, well, I've tried that. I've tried asking God to keep me from wandering and looking at worth, worthless things and uh, succumbing to iniquity, but it just doesn't work. And then with that customary twinkle in, in Bob's eye, he added, and when I hear that, I think to myself, somebody's not being entirely honest, and I don't think it's God. God will hold us to his word, especially if we ask him to. Prayerfully responding to scripture transformed the life of the great 19th century gospel worker, uh, George Mueller, uh, who for many years each morning got up, dressed, and prayed according to his agenda for the day. But all of that changed in the spring of 1841 when he discovered that, and I quote, the most important thing I had to do was to first give myself to reading, the reading of God's word, and then to prayerful meditation upon it. So prayer. Teach me by way of your word, Lord. Uh, Give me life by way of your word, Lord. Keep me from wandering away from your word, Lord. Well, what are some practical ways that we can willfully, courageously, and prayerfully approach God's word? Number one, remember Jesus. (laughs) Remember Jesus. How did he answer the temptation of the adversary in the wilderness recorded in Matthew 4? By way of the scriptures. How did did Jesus understand the purpose of his own ministry as articulated in Matthew chapter 20? According to the scriptures. When Jesus taught his followers how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, how did he do that? According to the Scripture. And if that was true of Jesus, how much more so of us? To this point, a former colleague of mine likes to say, uh, you cannot be profoundly affected by what you do not know. To grow in the Word requires that you know the Word. So, that's the next thing that I, I suggest, and, and that is just, just do it. Be a Nike Christian and just do it. That was my experience. One morning in my early 30s, I realized that other than reading the Bible from cover to cover to meet a challenge that was issued by my youth pastor, you know, read the Bible in a year, I had never really read the Bible. So I, I picked up a, a paraphrased version, which I still read to this day, cast in the old one-year Bible format, and I began reading, and, and I would write questions down that I had in the back cover, and as I continued reading and came across the answers, I'd write those down too. But you don't have to read the Bible that way. You don't have to do it in old 20th century form because uh, we have BibleGateway.com now. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, there are about 20 different reading plans from which to choose 
many of which include the daily delivery of your scripture portion by way of email. And then there are apps galore to help you become a faithful Bible reader. Uh, what, what have I found to be the advantages uh, of reading the Bible? Well, j- just a few right here. I've picked up the big picture of what's in Scripture. I know who's who and what's what and when it happened. Um, I was able to debunk some popular myths about Bible reading. So you're talking to somebody and they say, yeah, you know, I've tried to read the Bible. Boy, I got to Leviticus. And, or no, I got to Numbers. That's so I got to Numbers. And I was, well, you know what? I've read Numbers. And it's actually a great book, which tells me that they really haven't worked too hard in reading the book of Numbers. Another myth, uh, prophecies are inscrutable. Well, not as many as you think, actually. Or another one is, you can make the Bible say anything you want. And you know what? You can. Unless you've read it and you know what it says. (laughs) I think the thing that I, I have picked up from the Bible that's meant the most to me is Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you're weak in faith, it's a word problem. And you can be you can be addressed and built up by way of God's word and thereby find your, your faith strengthened. Well, uh, maybe reading the Bible is not your thing, then go ahead and listen to it. I've got it on Kindle. I listen to it sometimes at night or when I'm on an airplane. Uh, you can hear daily scripture portions at biblegateway.com. Uh, you, can, you can listen to a dramatized reading of the Bible on YouTube from beginning to end. Besides, this is how the original audiences received the Scripture. They heard the Scriptures read to them, and that's why there's a reading service at the beginning of each book study here at Grace. Another way to pursue God's Word is to write it down. Deuteronomy 17, 18 informed God's people that when a king of Israel sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. So every forthcoming king of Israel was to not only read and hear the law, but to actually write it down as well. So what I want you to do is Google, here comes a new word, kind of uncomfortable to say, because it sounds like a weird little creature, journables. (laughs) Journables, J-O-U-R-N-I-B. L-E. Journable. What are journables? Journables are books with blanked, ruled pages on the right side of which you copy God's word. And on the left-hand page, you write down your notes and your observations. And the size of these books is commensurate with the book of the Bible on which you're working. And my wife and my daughters have... um, uh, engage with Scripture at a, at a new level, a deeper level, by writing out God's Word. So I can pick up the book of Philippians. My wife has written the book of Philippians. <laughs> I can just flip through it and find it, and there it is in her hand. And they keep coming back for more. Another way you can do this is by reading the Bible in community. And sometimes over an extended period of time, such as 
Christmas vacation or a, a summer holiday, I'll choose a book or a section of the scripture for my family to read. And um, sometimes it's just my immediate family, or if we're going to be with extended family, I'll include them in it too. And since the chosen text is not to be used for any commercial purposes or broad distribution, I'll copy it uh, off some online copy of the Bible, uh, paste it into a Word doc, leave wide margins for notes and observations. I'll uh, design a cover for it. I'll include a little list of inductive study questions that they can apply as they read this scripture. And uh, then I'll have it copied and bound. In fact, here is last summer's uh, little thing. Just take it to Staples or a print shop and have a little wire binding put in there. And that's Psalm 119. And so periodically we get together, everybody's reading and writing on the same thing and we talk about it. And I I would have to say that some of our um, happiest times uh, down at Laguna Beach in the summer or around a Christmas uh, fireplace during vacation have been with that book in our hands. And I, I commend it to you. Finally, I have one other suggestion that's extra biblical, but it is so saturated in the scripture that I want to mention it to you. And it's a book called A Gospel Primer for Christians. It's by Focus Publishing, uh, or it's, it's uh, distributed by them. It's by a, a man named Milton Vincent. And um, it's a powerful way to preach the gospel to yourself in either prose or poetry every day. And all the scriptures to which uh, a gospel primer refers are footnoted in full. So you're constantly connected with the scriptures, a gospel primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. Well, I just want to wrap up by sharing with you two impressions that have been uh, coming to the forefront of my mind all this past week. And one is of a hydroelectric plant and the other is of an ethanol plant. Why those two things? Well, a hydroelectric plant uses water to run turbines that um, light up a power grid, right? And, And an ethanol plant uses corn to make fuel that runs automobiles. People make a living damming and channeling water to make electricity. And people make a living growing and harvesting corn to make gallons and gallons of ethanol. But you know what? Water and corn aren't just for making a living. You can actually drink water. (laughs) And you can eat corn. Isn't that something? And in the same way, the Bible isn't just a book for which this church stands. It isn't just a book in which a Biola student is educated. It isn't a book, just a book, from which a professor lectures. You know what, brothers and sisters? 
you can eat this book. You can. The prophet Jeremiah declared, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And you know what else you can do with this book? You can drink it. Jesus said, Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Maybe this is the week. Maybe today's the day to begin eating and drinking God's word. Please bow your heads. Take a minute to ask the Lord to bless you with an aha moment, a gestalt moment, a moment in which you're endowed with spirit-empowered resolve to willfully and courageously and prayerfully begin to read the word and grow in this habit of grace that leads to intimacy with and enjoyment of God as well as a fruitful life for him, a life that you could not have otherwise imagined. You know where the hard parts are, so would you pray that the Lord would kick those down and make you to be more of a man, more of a woman of his word. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.